Today's theme is observers, and I would like to welcome my co-host, Mr. John Thorne. Hey, Josh. Good to talk to you again. I'm sorry it's been so long. Uh, we've had quite a pause. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. For anybody out there who's you know curious, uh, yeah, we 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 didn't mean to wait this long, but uh, various uh, events happened in our lives that kind of pushed it back. And uh, and uh, and on top of that, I had um, I was distracted by this uh, Twin Peaks online conference that I presented at just uh, this Sunday, the 20th of June, which sort of took up my Twin Peaks thinking time. And um, I, I can talk a little bit more about that if we want at the end of this podcast. But um, but yeah, we were, um, we were distracted uh, for a little while, but we're back. We're back. Okay. So before we hop into what observers means and and you know our thinking on it let's talk about our green onions what do you have for green onions yes so my green onions um uh, subject for today is a book of poetry and the book is called critical assembly poems of the manhattan project by john canada it's like canada with a y at the end um okay. i visited the trinity uh detonation site about uh just it was before covid so it was uh it was october of 2019 and um it's a fascinating place to go visit and they had a uh, a stall set up out there in the desert with a tent over it where you could buy books and i saw this book of poetry and it it's one of those things, you know, I'm sure it's happened to you, Josh, where you see a book and you just suddenly know I've got to have that. That's the right oh, yeah. book for me. And so what it is, is it, it tells the story of the Manhattan Project in chronological order through poems. And each poem is um, basically a, a figure involved with the project. Um, in some cases, it's just um, uh uh, well, it's the scientists, of course, it's the military, it's the local ranchers, it's the um, stenographers, it's the family members, and each one contributes. In some cases, I think there's the spies, the Russian spies, and um, it tells the story of, of the whole Manhattan Project all the way through uh, and, 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 and until after the detonation of the bomb, and it, it works as a history. Um, it's beautifully written, and um, it, uh, it, it instills in you a little of the awe and, and worry of what happened, just like part eight of uh, Twin Peaks did. And so I recommend it for anyone who doesn't want a long book on it, but still, you know, wants sort of an artistic approach to that particular uh, historic event. It's fascinating. Critical Assembly. So that puts me in the frame of mind of the WGN show Manhattan from a few mm -hmm. years ago. Do you remember that show? Um, I did. I actually I, I met I met the creator of that show when I oh, was wow. at the Twin Peaks premiere in Los Angeles. I, I hadn't thought about it until just now. Um, I was standing there and talking to a few, few um, Hollywood people, and he was there, and he he was the the yeah. Anyway, sorry to hijack your no, <laughs> your comment, uh, but it was it was interesting to you know he was Sam there. Shaw. He was, Wasn't that his name, Sam Shaw? I, I, I can't remember his name, but he, he was there with Damon Lindelof and Jeff Jensen, and, and, and they were all eager to watch Twin Peaks that night. I, I always remember the name because it's like a, a wonderful writer's name. Like, man, I yeah, would kill yeah. for a writer's name like that, <clears throat> Sam Shaw. Uh, that show was outstanding. It really was good. I was like 
really enthralled with with what they were able to do to tell that same story you were just talking about but i love the idea of telling that through poetry Uh, i think people don't read enough poetry nowadays what do you think I, I think that's true. I've been trying to read more in the last few years, um, definitely paying more attention to it because um, it's like David Lynch says, it's the poets that are the ones who really can, uh, you know, convey meaning better than anyone else. Well, with the, through with the fewest amount, yeah, through, with the fewest amount right. of words. So I remember when I was in uh, my BFA program for creative writing, and I was, you know, we had to do poetry and fiction. You basically were taught that three of the four years, and then you could specialize in your final one. And so I switched between poetry and short fiction quite a bit in, in my composition. And I do remember that poems give you a freedom, but you have to be real careful with how you spend those words. So mm-hmm. they, yeah. they can really you know, punching the gut. And obviously the Trinity project has so much to do with the return. So it's a great green onions you brought. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So mine is, um, my, mine is a, a little less, more emotional. I would say, you know, I recently lost my best friend of 31 mm-hmm. years to COVID. He was, he hadn't had a chance to get vaccinated yet and it caught him on the wrong day and uh, mm-hmm. he just went downhill fast. And uh, that has been on my mind quite a bit over the last month and a half. And so, um, you know, thinking of loss and that the magnitude of, of um, you know, what's now absent from my life has really uh, mm-hmm. tainted, not tainted, how about just say informed, you know, my writing of late and the, my sure. thinking of late. And, and I'm sure it's going to seep into to our discussion today. So I just want to pre-warn everyone <laughs> that as my green onions, it's a public service announcement, if you will. Cool. So good. let's let's hop into the subject because I had thought this was fascinating when you came to <laughs> me with the idea of observers. I think we called it watchers at first, but mm-hmm. observers is what is what we settled on and in your mind when we think about twin peaks the return what is an observer well first you know i'll tell you what made me think of this as a as a possible topic i had been reading as uh you know as you know i've been reading a lot about kafka and we did a show about kafka a couple of uh more like months ago now and um in one brief um, essay I was reading about Kafka, they, uh, the, the author said that Kafka often populates his stories with these um, observers, he called them characters who are sort of in the background who are watching the protagonists, or sometimes they're just there, sometimes they contribute to plot, sometimes they have dialogue, sometimes they don't. And um, it just struck me that David Lynch seems to do the same thing, that there are uh, oftentimes um, obscure or curious or inexplicable characters who populate the backgrounds of the stories that we see in all of Lynch's work, but we'll, we'll focus on Twin Peaks. And um, and it's so, you know, I'm not sure, well, I'm going to wait until the end to, to, to kind of give some idea of, of what Lynch is trying to do, but um, I'm not sure they serve a narrative, maybe I'm giving it away now, they're not sure they serve a narrative purpose, they're not there to move the story along unnecessarily, um, but they are certainly there and they add atmosphere for sure to the story. Um, so we'll, we'll go through some of them, but I would say that some of them are are simply one shot appearance background characters who really do strike us. Uh, And in some cases, I think there's a few observers who are more prominent in the story, who have dialogue and who participate uh, um, a little more um, obviously in, uh, in the story. So we can talk a little bit about them. Yeah. I remember when you, when you first 
kind of pitched the idea, I, I remember first thinking of the um, the horrible trash lady in Mulholland Drive, I think it is, right? Or trash mm-hmm. man or whatever, whatever that is in the right. background. That was the first thing I thought of uh, because that is a very important uh, observer. And I, I guess, you know, they sc- she it screams at somebody. I don't know, uh, even know what sex that trash monster was. But well, <laughs> Yeah, right. It's just I think it's listed as the the bum behind the the trash. Uh, but it is play, the character is played by a woman, um, although in the movie you can't necessarily tell. Um, that's interesting. You bring that character up because it struck me that a, a similar character, though perhaps not as ominous, is uh, from a, a character in Firewalk with Me. Is the um, the uh, the strange woman who enters the the trailer when. Um, Carl Rod is is there with Chet Desmond and Sam Stanley. This woman comes in and she doesn't say anything and she sort of disrupts and and um, and adds confusion to the scene. And she was one of those characters I thought was is potentially one of these observers, these characters who don't seem to belong, and yet they do. They do belong and they're there. And um, and they're they're somewhat inexplicable. They don't. As I said, they don't really serve the story, but they certainly serve the atmosphere. Yeah, um, I think when we use this phrase indirect purpose, they move with an indirect purpose. And I think, you know, if we did have to describe them a purpose, a general purpose, it would be that they come to bear witness on the scene. And as such, it allows the director and the cinematographer and the editor to kind of focus or at least at least shape the way someone views a particular thing that's happening in the scene. What do you think about that? Uh, Yes. I mean, they do, they do tend to, you know, we respond to them and, and sometimes we're distracted by them. And I don't know, again, I don't know if Lynch has a purpose in that respect. Like he's trying to distract you. And yet um, they sort of have a gravity to them. If that makes any sense. I, if you don't mind me listing another couple that really really fit into this category and these are the ones that sort of drove me in into this topic it is the two um strange misshapen figures in the dark at beulah's in i believe it's part one of the return when um mr c comes to pick up uh ray and daria from beulah's Ray and Daria come out from back from the back and they before they can leave with Mr. C, they seem to almost um, check out of, of you know, they, they seem to get, have to I think they present a card to these figures. They're both in chairs, maybe one's a wheelchair and they um, they sort of have to pay homage or some they, they have to do some sort of ceremonial departure that involves these two figures. And we never see these two figures again. And. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, they they resonate in that scene. They seem to have such import, particularly because of the way Ray and Daria behave. And yet uh, Lynch was not going to give us any more than that. And and to me, these are the sort of, you know, the quintessential observer. They're there in the background. They are important because the other characters acknowledge their importance. And yet, and they're so unusual. Why are they there? So, so anyway, those really stand out to me. 
I really also like the idea that we, when we spoke about this of, you know, what, what if they, we pulled them out of the scene, you know, what, what would the scene be like in their absence if we were to pull them out? And I think that's really where we can start to understand the impact that they have on the, on the way they shape the way the viewer perceives what's happening in, in the frame. That is a great, great way to look at it. I hadn't thought of really that before. That is, <clears throat> that really does help you see how Lynch shaped the scene. If Ray and Daria had simply been, so Beulah brought them out and they walked around and left with, with Mr. C, it would have been fine. It would have been the kind of scene we see in countless television shows where one character comes to pick up his henchman or whatever. But yeah, Lynch adds this, this process, this, this, this really arcane and unusual sequence where they slowly make their departure and go through this. Again, I like to think of it almost as if they're checking out of a hotel, but it's this, you know, supernatural, dark, you know, bizarre uh, hotel. And um, you're right. Uh, the scene becomes just so much more um, powerful with that brief moment of of what happens and would not have had that had had you know lynch just just you know made it sort of a standard scene so you're right without them the scene is forgettable in, in many you know i shouldn't say it is forgettable but it, it it's it's just it's less scene. yes it's, less. it's lesser yeah. there's definitely something that opens up when when mr c walks in that room greets Otis, makes his demand to Beulah, and then there's that moment where I, I can't, actually can't remember if they showed us those guys before or after that happened, but that it, it expands that room and the danger of what's happening in a way that I can't, I don't know, I can describe it beyond that, but it would be lesser if they, if those people weren't there. Yeah. You, you, yeah. That's a great, that's a great point that there's, there's this, um, there's this extra level of uh, it, it's, it's a little more ominous than it would have been otherwise. That already, so yes, there's there's a so suddenly we we it, it adds to the Mr. C character. Now, even though Mr. C doesn't seem to be disturbed by these figures, I forget it's been a long time since I watched the scene. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's suddenly there's there's more to Mr. C's world. And in this very simple scene of Ray and Daria checking out with these two figures, Mr. C becomes more than just the guy who beat up his way into the into the um into that shack. He suddenly has about him some very curious, potentially supernatural characteristics and and they really do you're right that's a great way of of how it added to the mr c character how how it what it did for him and then obviously there's you know what most people are going to focus on with those two characters are one is tall and one is small you know it's like that that theme that tends to echo throughout twin peaks i tried to look for a much more literal connection between like Bob and the one-armed man um, and the little, and the little man from another place. But I honestly gave up on that pretty early because it didn't feel good. You know, I just, I, I liked the emotion and the feelings that I got from the expansion of that scene um, with all those characters in that room, uh, even though most of them didn't have a purpose. 
well, yeah, not a narrative purpose necessarily, but but an atmospheric purpose. And as you say, I mean, maybe it, it really does add to the world of Mr. C, gives, gives him a more resonance than he might have had before. Well, there's a roguish element in that scene. I think of like the cantina scene from Star Wars where you're on the cusp of, you know, a crazy bold new world that's dangerous there was a, res- a level of decorum and respect once Mr. C went into the house. I mean, he, he and Otis, I had what, what I would call a, um, a convivial conversation. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't negative. It wasn't, you know, threatening. It wasn't physical. And Beulah even, that was a transactional conversation. Right. But yet he just beat the crap out of this dude, <laughs> this dude walking in who, who dared to kind of, a, you know, approach him and, and try and stop him. Yeah, you know, too, it, it adds a little bit to to Beulah in a strange way, because Beulah is somehow this. Um, she's like a clerk or an admin at the DMV or something. She's <laughs> like a clerk. Yeah, exactly. She, and, and you and you wonder just what worlds Beulah is straddling, um, you know, because she's got this strange, these strange figures in the room uh, in her her realm. So. Um, there's a few other figures that are similar to this, but before maybe before we get into some of the larger figures, I wonder if you mind if I jump around a little and look at a couple of more, a couple of other characters who are still, you know, they still kind of uh, are positioned in the background uh, and and are not as prominent, perhaps, although. A, uh, you know, th- these two characters we just talked about are very, very background. Um, it's hard to get further back than some of the than these two. But there's a couple of other characters who are really curious throughout the story. And um, I'm just going to name a couple of them off and then we can talk about whichever one strikes our fancy. Um, the uh, so a couple. One is the wounded drunk who is in the um, in the cell across from Chad. Uh, when you know Chad is put into into jail, uh, again he doesn't really serve a narrative purpose, and yet Lynch gives us a lot of this character who seems to taunt um, Chad. Um, another curious curious character, it's pretty much in the background, is the farm accountant, whom uh, some people may not remember, but is this when uh, Mr. C has the um, uh, arm wrestling match. Uh, with the uh, with the, the leader of the of the, the gang uh, at the farm, um, there are a lot of background characters there, and they're all just seem to you know basically be part of the gang. But there is this one curious character who um, is dressed differently. Uh, he doesn't really seem to belong to this gang. He doesn't look like a tough guy. Um, he's got glasses on, and he thinks he's wearing a vest and a tie. And he, um, at the very end of the scene, he he turns to Mr. C, or he's standing there waiting, and, and, and basically sort of pledges his allegiance to Mr. C and says, do you need any money? It's a curious line. It doesn't Again, doesn't really make any sense, and yet it adds to the scene. Can we pause on those? So just talk about the three of those, uh, or the two of those, really, really quickly. So let's start with the farm accountant. The you know, when I was writing the book, I had to uh, restrain myself, and I still may write an essay someday about this. Although I declared not to write about Twin Peaks anymore. That that character um, was actually, in some ways, poking fun at Breaking Bad. 
Because if you think about what Breaking Bad was about, it was all about the money. The money, you know, up, up until it was about power, it was all about the money and always the money was representative of the power in that show uh, until the very end, at least. And I feel like that was kind of Mark Frost going, oh, let me just wrap the whole plot line of that show in here and show you that this is about much more than that. This is about so much more than that. I just, uh, I don't know, maybe that's me way reading more into it, but I, I really like that idea of it. No, that's a, it's a great point. That character, whoever he is, and we can because he's so blank, we can start reading a lot into him. And if we want, we can speculate, you know, about this or that. But it's interesting for him, probably. And again, this is speculation, but that character probably, you know, it, it sees money as power. And in, in you know, in the real world, money is power. Um, but for that character in particular, he wants to. Um, he wants to help Mr. C and there's only one way he knows um, he can't, you know, go do what Hutch and Chantal do and assassinate people, but he, he could do something with money and he just he sort of pledges his allegiance to Mr. C or wants to assist Mr. C. He's sort of under the sway of this emanating evil that is Mr. C and that character says, um, do you need any money? Um, that's the world he lives in where money is power. But, um, but he is curious the way he stands there and watches. He just stands there and is, is in many ways an observing presence. Well, I think it's clear that he's, he's watching the, the start of an assassination. <laughs> I think he's aware of that as he's saying it to him. And, and, and basically before that happens, there's a, usually a financial transaction that has to take place in, in this gang's world, you know, money, for death, whatever that is like, but Mr. C comes in and completely levels <laughs> that entire perception that evil takes place on that level. Like that's pet, that's kindergarten. It's nursery school, right? It's, you know, his kind of evil is of the soul and the spirit and the corrupt, the corruption of the purity inside of, of the dreamer, let's just say. And um, I think it, it really does uh, set itself apart uh, uh, from, from a perspective of evil uh, than many, many other shows uh, that are on television or ever have been. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. So The Wounded Drunk, uh, I think, I don't know if, uh, what your feelings are on this, but I wanted this to be the guy, I wanted this to be Billy. Uh, yeah, a lot of people, well, I shouldn't say a lot of people. I have heard great theories that it could be Billy, the character that some of the women at the Roadhouse uh, um talk about it and of course Audrey talks about it and, there, and the, there's this there's a sort of hidden extremely minor mystery of has anyone seen Billy what happened to Billy so yeah great great point but then I realized it doesn't matter <laughs> because, <laughs> exactly. because what that guy brings to that scene is it it digs about three uh, levels below the basement <laughs> you know like it really opens up some darkness into that prison scene uh, which is already dark on its face but then it just takes it to a level that um, it's emotional more than anything yeah you know there's a couple of fascinating things to 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 talk about with this character um in in one way i equated him as paralleling nato that nato has been put into the jail cell which in itself on its surface is a weird thing that they would have put NATO in a jail cell, but that's, it's not, it's that kind of world. <laughs> it's that kind of world and NATO's in, a, in the cell and she is a strange figure. 
um, I would not I would not make her one of these observers. She's a character who has a whole different um, purpose and and some extreme you know, well, it's extreme, but some deliberate narrative um, purpose, I think. But the, the drunk seems to parallel her, another unusual figure that's in the jail. And um, you wonder if um, what we see, like just like we see NATO and maybe that's really what NATO looks like. Maybe the drunk is um, is we're seeing the drunk through a specific perspective uh, and uh, he he's um, he's someone else. Uh, what or whom he is. Billy's a great possibility, but maybe he's someone else. But we don't really follow through uh, with the drunk. We just see him there and he's sort of a mocking He's sort of Chad's torture. Chad's been put into one of the levels of hell, <laughs> and uh, and 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 this is the torture that he must uh, endure. Is this this mocking drunk? Um, I would just propose one other possibility, and this is a narrative possibility: is that he's been placed in the jail by higher powers. Let's say the firemen. This is just a fun little speculation, uh, and he's there. As a, as a stopgap, he's there to hold Chad in place so Chad doesn't get out because Chad has a key in his, in his shoe and he can get out any time, but he's being held in place by this figure until the right time, until it's okay for Chad to get out. I say okay in that the outcome will be correct, that, that um, um, Freddie will be in place essentially to stop him. So, um, uh, you know, it, it gives, um, it give, makes us think a little bit about, you know, what are the, the larger plans in place and are pieces being manipulated so that uh, the outcome will be what the higher powers want. And so the drunk is there <laughs> to keep Chad in place. It's just, I'm not really sure I buy that, but I like the idea. I just sort of, that strikes me. Well, it goes uh, to the indirect purpose. Like, so just because it's indirect doesn't mean it's not a purpose. So that, that idea of um, two characters, okay, being inside of these independent jail cells, we already know that NATO is essentially a flush prison for, let's just call the memory of Diane or the concept of Diane. So there is already an entity inside of a flesh prison that's now inside of a jail cell in, in the world that we're occupying. And I would argue that it's, you could easily read the same things happen. They're both disfigured too, by the way. So on their face, they're both disfigured. And th this guy could absolutely be a counterpart, a counterforce, a balancing element to that scene where it does it does hold things in, in place you know that there are there's there's elements that are holding two of our heroes in place james and uh freddie and there's also an element that's holding you know chad in place but it's uh it's, it's like equal and opposing forces there's a lot of energy happening inside of the those jail cell scenes and it, it feels balanced when i think of it like this yeah that that's a great that is a great uh observation just that it in a way there's a balance that nato is such an extreme figure that there's another extreme figure curiously on the same side of the jail you know there, i think nato and the drunk if you if you look at the at the way the whole thing is staged they're on one side and then chad and freddie and james are on the other side of of the corridor um you know, again, I don't want to read too much into it, but there is that element of balance. I, I think just sort of on a very base level, you get a sense of 
of the jail being balanced. That if NATO was on you know one side, it just well, and Mister C and Cooper are both coming to the jail. One's got a little more acceleration on them, right? Because they, they were supernaturally placed there by by a trap that was sprung, that was sprung. But there, that that whole episode is a convergence of good and evil finally back into balance. I think, and I've never put it together until we just had this conversation about it. I think. That is a great way to think about episode 17, a bringing, a, bring, a bringing back to balance. And then what happens when balance is combined with agency again, which is kind of what we get in the Cooper that goes through this transformation with the Diane sex ritual and all of that. And then finally, we have an entity that has some agency, but has lost all of its connection to the superficial things of its past. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, very much. So another observer that I want to talk about, I know you've got a ton to say about this one, is Deputy Jesse Holcomb in the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department. Um, this guy is in some very, very key points in the return. Absolutely. The more I think about Desi- Deputy Jesse Holcomb, the more I'm fascinated with this character, the more I like this character, uh, the more import I give to this character. Um, and I will just say this, I won't, I won't dominate this uh, conversation, but there is a scene with Jesse Hol- Holcomb that has always struck me as curious. And this is the scene where um, um, Maggie, the dispatcher, is, is sort of arguing with Chad in this, this back room of the sheriff station. And Chad is mocking Sheriff Truman's son having committed suicide. And Maggie is, you know, kind of, you know, chastising him. And so you don't know what you're talking about. And the scene ends very curiously with this sort of close up on Jesse. We had this argument and then we, we go to Jesse and Jesse's just looking up. Um, he's looking up it's toward the ceiling and he sort of has a serene look on his face and it's a striking scene. And it wasn't until later when we started talking about observers that I thought maybe you know, Jesse doesn't really have a purpose in, in the story other than he's a presence. And maybe he's one of these observing presences who's there to just keep an eye on things and watch. So what do you think about it? it I, th- I think it's a, a great reading of that scene, especially, but I think of when you, when you just described that, remember the old paperclip in Microsoft office that would kind of pop up and say, Hey, it looks like you're trying to copy this document. I, I feel like, you know, in that moment, that's just that him look like looking up to the corner of the ceiling going, what should I be thinking about in this moment? You know, it's just, uh, I love, I love the idea that Lynch just kind of sometimes just puts in a little, action that shows you what you should be doing in this moment and and uh you know, we end up doing it <laughs> yeah you know and it, it is easy to in that particular scene it's kind of easy to to think you know yeah that lynch just needed to um find a a, a curious way to end that scene and he cuts to jesse this is a lynchian type thing to do um but it's these other incidents with jesse who, who the places where he pops up um, that, that lend him, I'm not going to say supernatural, but he has, he's not quite grounded. Does that make sense? I'm not quite sure what the word is, but he doesn't quite fit. It's, sur- I think he's surreal. It's, it's surreal. It, yes. Yeah, surreal again. That is a great, yeah. Uh, two particular instances 
and they actually happen in the same episode and they happen almost back to back is when um, we have the, you know, the very strange incident with um, Bobby in the, in the intersection where there's been gunfire and there's blaring horns. And then Jesse kind of appears out of nowhere. <laughs> he, he says, I was at Big Ed's gas farm and I heard gunshots and he sort of shows up. And then it's the next scene, I think, that Hawk and Truman are looking at Hawk's map. And um, we've just come out of this dramatic incident with essentially that it involves the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department, Bobby and Deputy Jesse. And we cut to this next scene and there's a knock on the door that, you know, in the, in the conference room and Truman gets up and he, and he answers it and it's Jesse. And I remember the first time I saw that scene, I thought, oh, Jesse's going to tell him, hey, we had this incident down at the double R. I want to tell you about it. But no. And this scene takes place right after where Jesse was just there. Um, and time is all weird in Twin Peaks, I know. And the scene may have been shot for a different episode. But Jesse's there and he's like, hey, I want to tell you about my new car. And, and you know, Truman's sort of tolerating him. And I don't have time for this right now, Jesse. And you, Jesse begins to tell the year. He says it's a 2000 and Truman cuts him off. And I like to think of, you know, the idea of what year is this? You know, what year is this? We don't find out. Um, but it struck me. Why is Jesse there? Jesse's sort of a hovering presence. And um, there right at the time that Truman and Hawk were talking about this very strange map. And I think right after uh, an all important phone call from the log lady to Hawk. And then Jesse is there as well. Um, I'm not going to read anything into it necessarily other than he seems to show up at, at unusual times. Well, there's something almost uh, Vonnegutian about the idea of being unstuck in time in, in Twin Peaks, The Return. And when you just described that, I got a picture of Billy Pilgrim and, and uh, Slaughterhouse-Five who actually just flashes into in these moments like Philip Jeffries in Firewalk With Me just flashes into a scene and is trying to assess like it's almost like Quantum Leap. You remember how Sam used to leap into the next thing? He'd, he'd, it'd take him a few minutes to figure out what the hell is going on. But And this idea of flashing in saying, listen, I was just at Big Ed's gas farm. And all of a sudden these gunshots ring out and boom, I'm right here. It, it reminded me of the, the moment of the insurance salesman in the pilot or in the episode one of the return where he's like, it, you know, it, it depends on which one he's like, I don't know who I want. <laughs> it was one of those kind of moments. Right. 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 Which is the whole quantum physics thing in and of itself. The idea of, of, you know, until that insurance agent makes an observation, then whoever Frank Truman is doesn't collapse into an identity, <laughs> you know, but that's a, that's a whole different topic. But um, yeah, that's a really fascinating way of thinking about Deputy Jesse is if he just sort of pops in and out. Um, I think the only other time he appears is where he, he shows up to announce that Wally Brando has arrived. So Deputy Jesse announces that there's someone in the there's somebody in the parking lot waiting for you. It says he, he knows you. And I, I think he says his name is Wally Brando or and, and then Andy and Lucy go running out and then Truman kind of rolls his eyes and goes. I think that's the only other. I could be wrong. I know he's in the background. It's curious to me, too, where he's not. Deputy Jesse, where he doesn't show up and he does not show up in part 17. I mean, everybody else pretty much is at Chad is in part 17. He's down in the jail and Hawk is there and Bobby's there and Truman's there and, and Andy's there. Um, but 
Jesse's nowhere to be found. He 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 where he he's got the day off, I guess, right? So if you want to just give it a real basic answer, but he's not there, and he's also not um, part of um, he's not part of the group. When he wouldn't necessarily be part of that core first original season group that you know that hikes into the woods to to investigate Jack Rabbit's palace. Um, he's not he's 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 not part of that insider group that it consists of Truman and Bobby and Hawk and Andy, but he's not there either. Um, so there are parts of the story that have to do with the sheriff's department um, that Jesse's there sometimes and he's, he's not there other times. And again, you know, that may mean nothing. It's just, it's all coincidental. And it's just the way Lynch shot it. But at the same time, it, it is, he is a striking figure. Um, of when he shows up and when he doesn't show up. Yeah. 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 Very good. Excellent. Um, you know, you reminded me of a character. He's actually not on our list um, um, that when you said Las Vegas, if you don't mind me um, interjecting, um, one of the most one of the most interesting observing presences um, is the drugged out mom, the 119 um, and, and particularly really the boy more than the woman, the 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 she doesn't really observe she's just sort of she's sort of like the dr the drunk she's um you know the wounded drunk she's sort of a, a presence that i guess sort of anchors the boy to the home and the boy is a watcher or an observer he's looking literally looking through the window at what's going down out on the street um and these are very curious characters because um we only see them briefly and uh there is no narrative purpose to them. Um, I think there is a balancing uh, element to them. I've thought about them before. I think in, in many ways they are the balancing figures, uh, you know, that counterbalance Janie E and Sonny Jim. You got the drug out mom and the little boy. So there's sort of a, there's sort of a balancing um, uh, going on in, in this, in these two places that Dougie has these two homes that Dougie's been goes to. Um, but they're they're you know what why are they there they're observers they're, right i mean they're they're checking things well, out i think they 
they together those two characters they focus the viewer's attention specifically very very tightly you know we're, we've got a lot of questions <laughs> before before cooper makes his way through that that socket and a lot more afterwards but it, it that kid's you know, view and observation of what's happening focuses us in on the car, focuses us in on what's happening right there. And the the mother's presence sounds an alarm at the same time. So functionally as viewers, we are focused on something that was wide a moment ago, but now it's a pinpoint and the alarms are going off, you know, all over, all around us. That is a great observation. You know, I remember Craig Miller once commented on the, um, the, the woman who screams in the pilot of Twin Peaks. And it's a famous scene, the courtyard in the school, and this woman screams and runs through the courtyard. And Craig said, that scene doesn't have any, you know, and you don't even know how, what she's screaming about. How, did she find out about Laura? You know, could she, it could possibly, or is it is a premonition? Like it's almost... The story is the, the death of Laura is so big that it's already permeated in outside of the characters we're watching, and it 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 can't be stopped. This news that's coming, and it's almost like it's um, it, it's just an audio, it's just an alarm. That like just what you said, it's like an alarm that goes off and triggers the viewer, and in some cases the characters. Like okay, something's up. And we can't really put our finger on it. We can't explain it, but there's something in the air. And um, I like that idea that you mentioned about this, this focusing that they, they help in, in a way for us to really focus our attention on what's happening across the street. And in a way, that house across the street has been a threshold. Uh, it's a place where one world has potentially overlapped another because Cooper has come out. Exactly. And, and they are the dwellers on that threshold. Uh, they they are there to kind of just you know, keep an eye on it. And they're protected. So the little boy was protected by a dark fate, you know, the, the gang that, that yeah. up to, to plant the bomb or steal the car. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember yeah. which one it was. But you know, there were a lot of negative forces converging on that car. And that boy was right there in the danger zone. And they, both of those forces came together and actually gave him a bubble of protection that pushed him away, right? So... Uh, yeah, yeah, really um, yeah, but I, I really am liking this idea of, you know, we don't need to think about the characters in terms of even their observers, but who are they observe, who are they reporting to that none of that really matters. The uh, it, us, we're just the uh, just what you're saying, though, is the idea is that they are. Um, they are they are they're helping they're helping it's almost like lynch is putting them there to steer the way we we are watching they are yeah, watching it's an it's emotional a, guideline an yeah. emotional bumper yeah almost yes. a, a guide it's a guide yeah yeah i love it i think that's so powerful and it explains so much about his films as well i mean mm -hmm. I, could, I could take that concept and, and really go explore you know uh, all of his other work in a way that I never was able to before. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's really, it is interesting. It is deliberate um, on Lynch's part. And um, it's as if he, he instinctually knows these scenes are powerful by themselves. They work. But if you put these figures in um, who essentially focalize uh, what's happening or they, 
yeah, they act as some sort of conduit for the viewer to some extent, then the scenes become even more powerful. Um, they become, um, they, they stick with you longer, right? I mean, it, it, it's, it's Lynch's way of really making the, the work, um, I, I, I keep falling back on the same terms, but resonate with the viewer. Danger and death are not uh, in common on television drama. I mean, think of a CSI episode that has the same elements, a woman screaming, a murder, an evil person, you know, uh, a method of killing them for some reason. All of those elements are in a standard trope show. This one, basically, by injecting these observers as, as just one element, there are others, but injecting uh, these weird moments and these strange, you know, reality stretching uh, experiences on the viewer, it it does bring the concept of danger and death into a whole new uh, era of experience as a viewer. Yeah, I think so. I, I agree completely. It really makes the work that much more powerful and um, you want, it almost, it pulls you into a, you know, to a point where you want to explore it more. Maybe, you know, we don't necessarily need to explore the 119 mom, drugged out mom, but we need to explore that, that, realm uh, around these observing characters this well i mean and in some ways you know lynch does that and i think frost's it was frost's idea that he wanted this rancho rosa to be a ghost town and uh it, you know it's a modern day ghost town and these are the ghosts that are haunting well, what do you say what are ghost towns if not portals for the dead yeah yeah so <laughs> lynch i think you know this it's, i didn't really thought about this till now but I, I i'm pretty sure that frost's idea was the ghost town. He said in interviews, I was struck by the housing crisis and how there were these empty developments, you know, that had never, ever, no one had ever moved into them. So, so he, he, he liked that concept and Lynch liked that concept too. And he took it just one step further and said, okay, it's a ghost town. We're going to populate it with spirits. Yeah. And, and, and so, yeah. Oh. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, I want I want to talk next about one of what I consider the most important moments of observing in the entire show. Okay. So this is the moment where Richard Horn mows down the little boy. There are many elements of watching that take place in those four to five minutes. I think the scene length was the one character who's not watching is Richard Horn, <laughs> who's driving this car, you know, furious at this perceived insult that he received from red and, you, you know, probably the greatest uh, insult I've ever heard. S stupid magic motherfucker. I think is the, <laughs> it's just a quote, which is uh, Oh my God, makes me laugh still. But once that happens and that little boy who also, I guess, wasn't watching technically, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that death happens. Obviously the mother watches Carl Rod is probably one of the most important observers in that scene. Miriam observes that it was Richard Horn. She, you know, that there's a moment where they actually observe each other, you know, at, at that, at that moment flying at high speeds in a car. And then of course, all the, the standby people who watch in a very strange deputy Jesse Holt, it, deputy Jesse like way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The only thing, you know, the only counter I would give you to that, um, and, and I agree with you, of course, I mean, there's a lot of watching going on, but the subtle difference for me in this scene is less observation and more the idea of witnessing, the idea of, of seeing something happen and in, and in some cases passing judgment on it. I think Miriam 
is passing judgment on. And I think um, Carl Rod serves a purpose because he's a president. He tries to comfort as best he can. So he tries to do something with what he's witnessed. Um, the people in in the in the street uh, and you know on the you know who, who saw what happened. And I will personally admit, I think it's one of the weaker parts of the return. I just think the the performance is there, and maybe it's deliberate. It, who knows? It just strikes me as they they I, I didn't buy their reactions. I guess, but that's me. That's me, and I, I don't I well, don't I, need I don't to. think you've countered. I said I think you've you've uh, made it yeah. You, you kind of magnet that when so when does observing something turn into witnessing something? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. What a maybe, great question. Yeah. That's yeah, that is a good question. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, there is a lot of going on. There is definitely a lot of going going on in that scene. And um, you're right; it could be this this shift between observing and witnessing. And it, and and in some ways, Carl Rod bears witness to the pain of the mother. He sees arguably the soul of the boy ascend uh, to to heaven, and he as best he can tries to convey the comfort of what he has observed, even though he can't put it into words. And I don't think he speaks any words there, but he, he kneels down beside her, perhaps a sense of hope there, right. That he, he can't, he can't tell her explicitly, but he's trying to say to her, he's okay. Yeah. That idea of, uh, we've talked about the Bodhisattva before, and I don't want to give too much reference to Cooper, but more the function of the Bodhisattva. So this is the Buddha of inexhaustible compassion, the one that truly felt suffering with, which is the meaning of the word compassion, suffering with uh, other characters. The idea that that suffering is part of the natural movement of the universe, which is sacrifice. It demands sacrifice. It's an ever burning fire that never goes out, but there is a purpose that's greater than that. That, is certainly something we should be walking away from that scene with, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a powerful scene and particularly, um, and I've, I've written about it, um, with w what happens with Carl Rod there. And yeah, um, I, I, I yeah. want to put a pin for you and I to come back at some point and, and revisit that question about when observing something becomes witnessing something, because I feel like that happens to the viewer over the 18 episodes. At some point, you yeah. go from just watching something to being a witness to something, which I think you're exactly right. You, you know what you're looking at. Mm. You've passed judgment on it. And mm -hmm. in the case of Twin Peaks, I think the return you and I have both found it to be good. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So if we're, yes. if we're witnesses, right. Right. Yes. I think we both found that experience to be enriching. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Um, so let's let's move on. What's uh, who's another observer that we haven't talked about? Well, yet? you know, um, there are. I'm going to list off a couple of ones that we don't need yeah. to spend a lot of time on they're just a pre i'm going to say they're observing presences more than they are actually really almost figures um very quickly uh the window washer who who seems to to come up uh in the one scene where gordon cole walks in to talk to albert there's this there's this presence outside a window and we don't know if that presence is seeing anything or just doing is just there as a distraction or as a warning for for gordon cole um but but there is a figure outside this window you can't even see you know the window's not the window's not transparent the blind is pulled down all you see is the shadow of this figure outside the space these characters are inhabiting and so there there is this um unseen figure that's there 
And I guess the question in some ways is how much does this figure know or even care about what's going on inside the space? Um, you know, what is, what is the purpose of that? And there's another character who in some ways is like that and easily dismissible, and I'm, I'm sure not many people have thought about, and that is Carl Rod's van driver, who is, who's given a name, and I can't remember what his name is. He actually has a name, and I, I had it written down somewhere. Um, but there's this driver that Carl Rod can summon at a moment's notice. He, he blows a whistle, and this van is always waiting, I guess, and it comes rolling up, and you can't really see the driver. You, there's a reflection on the window when you see from the outside, you can't see the driver, and then on the inside, you just see the back of his head, um, and and he's a presence too. Uh, and again, maybe he like the he drives the van and the window washer washes the window. And there's nothing more to it. And it's foolish of us to try to to um, to assign more meaning to these figures. And yet, um, and yet, it seems as if Lynch kind of points us toward them. Certainly, in the window washer, it's an obvious you know something we need to kind of process. Um, I would argue that is also happening to some extent with the um, the van driver is that, you know, we almost kind of want to see him and, and yet we're denied that. And so um, who are these who are these figures that that seem to show up, um, I guess, in the case of the van, show up when called and then the window washer, perhaps an interrupting force. Um, so did those those two strike me? They're, they're curious background presences yeah i like both of them if we try to apply that test of taking them out of the scenes that they were in you know the window washer that sound obviously caused a reaction for gordon cole who had to change his devices to process in a different way what was happening in that moment and it, again it could be a cue for the viewer as well like something's right. happening pay attention something's right. changed be aware <laughs> yeah 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 Exactly. And, Very good. And, yeah. And then the 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 idea of having um, <laughs> a mobile that is available on on, whist, on a whistle's command and has a whole command center in the back right. with the communication. <laughs> I mean, like that that idea um, is is just funny on its face, first of all. But the idea that Carl Rod actually has people who service him, uh, I think, is important to for for us as viewers to note in in Twin Peaks: The Return. Yes, it adds to the character of Carl Rod that he is, and obviously we just talked about him, and he was able to see the. Again, I'm going to assign a meaning to it, but it could be open to many interpretations. But the soul of the of the boy, the, the dying and dead boy, go ascend to heaven. Um, it, it may not be the soul; it may be something else entirely. But, but, but he, Carl Rod, nevertheless, is the only one who can see whatever that supernatural occurrence is. And and so when you and then he has this van, as you say, which is it's almost like a mobile lab, <laughs> you know, or it's got all his equipment in it. He, he has a direct line to the sheriff's station and. Um, and uh, yeah, it's waiting for him whenever he blows his strange whistle. Uh, and so it just adds to the character. The character is far more than what he appears. Um, if the owls are not what they seem, then Carl Rod is not what he seems. Well, this should be reiterated that this was a complete retcon of that character from Firewalk with me. Like that guy yes. was awesome. He was amazing. He was funny. He's funny every time. Um, I, lo I love the curmudgeonry. I love yep. the shortness. I love everything about that experience of watching that character in Firewalk with me. But 
what we got in the return was something completely different and so much better, so much better. Yeah, it's you know that's that could be a topic of a maybe another oh, podcast. Yeah, the whole idea of Carl right. Rod and what's going on with Carl Rod. Um, uh, yeah, he he he's, he's different personality in the return than um, he's much more self centered in, in Firewalk with me, and he's much more um, ca- a caring individual in um, in the return. It's as if he has learned something in the in the years that have transpired that he, you know, that he needs to give of himself and that makes the world a better place. I'm going to stop myself because there's a, t- you know, this actually may be its own episode because there's a ton to talk about that, the backstory of that character that Mark Frost put into the secret history. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. the, the fact that he has no helpers in Firewalk to me has a ton of helpers on, yeah. in, in the return. I mean, there's a ton to explore there. Yeah. Let's put a pin in it because I think it's a yeah. great topic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's another great topic. It's, Let's it talk about so- Lucy. Yeah, so Lucy, and, and this this is, the, I mean, this sort of, in some ways brings this, and I don't mean to, to bring it to a close if we're not done, but in many ways, this sort of brings us to, to a concept that is underlying the return, and it fits in with our topic today. We called our topic observers, and Lucy um, inadvertently, or certainly she doesn't, she's not aware but she is bringing up the idea of observer effect, which is a, um, a quantum physics concept. And we know that, that Lynch has some you know, brief um, <laughs> interest in, um, in, in, in quantum physics concepts. He, he couldn't speak in quantum physics terms, but he has talked about it in the past um, about how quantum physics um, seems to support some of the Hindu uh, ideas of um, unified fields and, um, and you, know, you know, again, some of the um, far Eastern concepts of the universe. But so Lucy, she 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 talks about the thermostat uh, in in one particular scene, um, and wonders if the thermostat is working when they're not there. You know whether or not their presence in the in the room, you know, is essentially necessary for the thermostat to work. And then there are these other things that come about with Lucy. Um, she talks about the time she relates a story about when the clock stopped. Uh, at their home, Andy and Lucy, and and she won. And she says it seemed like forever. And then there's this idea as if they're not looking at the clock, or the clock isn't working right. Is time passing? And so they're somewhat vague and obscure, but nevertheless, Lucy's bringing in this this the idea of, of observer effect, and that is that when you watch something, you change it, you change the outcome, or you impact it in some way. So your presence is essential for however it's going to be steered. And, um, and so Lucy is, you know, the whole idea with the cell phones and a lot of other, there's a lot more to Lucy. She, she too could be, <laughs> um, I mean, you, you could argue that Lucy is actually impacting the world around her and maybe all the characters are that Lucy literally in, in what she is, what she is observing, she is shifting reality around her and it changes to, to what she's observing. And remember, um, how, she's the one who fires the bullet that, that kills Mr. C. So th- that idea of this character who was an observer ultimately became, I like the idea of, of a witness, you know, became a witness and then became an active participant 
in the forces of towards the forces of good in this yeah. narrative. And if you want to continue to apply the quantum physics concept, the idea is that when she took that action, she collapsed the universe into that one state that it was open to a lot of possibility, and then her observer effect collapsed it. These are, and I'm I'm speaking very crudely about them. There's people, if if anyone's listening this long into the podcast, to perhaps know a lot more about quantum physics than I, and so I'm 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 speaking at a very amateur level on it, but. It, but I understand the concept to a certain extent, and I think Lucy exhibits this. And there is, in fact, a quantum physics um, concept known as observer effect. And um, it does talk about the idea that the impacts the world they're observing. And, um, and so Lucy exhibits that. And as you know, Josh, I've talked uh, a lot and I've written a lot about the idea that Cooper may very well be um, this grand observer of the whole story, that he's watching it from, from afar. Uh, and so- uh, Vishnu, like that idea of vi the Vishnu, right? Vishnu watches the dream of the world. Well, Vishnu, yeah, I mean, Vishnu, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's maybe even a level above above uh, Cooper. But so I just wanted, to, I just wanted to pause right there for just a moment because something you just we just said there, we talked about Vishnu and this idea of a grand observer. Um, do, do we not see that in the Fireman in Part Eight? Is that not what's happening when that golden orb spawns, the avatar of Laura Palmer spawns, and the Fireman's got this kind of dream of the world almost coming out of his head? And, and we're just picking elements out of that. I, I didn't think about it until you just phrased what you just said like that. Well, uh, you know, this was actually in many ways the topic of the presentation I gave at the Twin Peaks conference. Uh, we briefly mentioned at the beginning, um, you, you know, one of my interpretations ways i won't go into all the details to take me too long but i was interpreting uh, sort of mapping hindu belief onto the story because lynch david lynch has um expressed so much interest in certain hindu concepts um and i so i um equated the fireman with the hindu deity vishnu and vishnu's role um, very crudely is to monitor the universe and um, to kind of keep an eye on the world and, and and make sure everything's going along properly and and that's exactly what we see in part eight we see a figure who has a screen I mean they actually have like a you know Lynch depicts it as a movie screen which is perfect but it's his, it's his monitor it's his way of uh, his window onto the world and so he's he's watching he's observing and then taking action when needed. It's great. I, I really do love that concept of the grand observer um, that, that you talked about there. Uh, I'm sure we could talk about that for a very, very long time. Um, we, we had a couple other ones, and, and I'm just going to throw a few out there. And if any of them interest you, let's kind of dig in a little bit. Um, the candy to me is one of the great watchers <laughs> of, of the return. Um, you know, in my book, I, I even give her credit with naming the experience of what we're seeing from part three, uh, ever since Cooper goes through the socket. So that'd be part four, I guess, all the way up through part 17, which she says we're in the version layer to Anthony Sinclair down in the uh, lobby of the, the casino. And I took that to mean like, okay, this is a, a layer of dream that these characters are living through. And I'm going to call it the version layer because Candy told me to. And th that idea of she, she is a, a grand observer. She sees Rodney becoming corrupted 
by forces and, and, you know, cheap emotions and jealousy, pettiness, uh, and doesn't see him for a while. There are several episodes where she only sees Bradley. She doesn't see Rodney. Uh, Candy is a very interesting observer to me in the return. Yeah, no, I, I thought a lot about that character too. I do agree with you. Uh, she, uh, she sort of uh, occupies this, um, you know, one of these curious characters isn't quite seen to fit into the reality the other characters are inhabiting. She, there's something about her. Is she seeing more than they can see? Is she on the surface seeing less than they can see? Because she's depicted as someone maybe who's just sort of ditzy or absent-minded, you know, this stereotype. But Or is there more to her? Is she capable of seeing the universe and the world in a way that others cannot? And, and that explains her behavior. Um, she, she is a presence, and she is one of those characters that ends up in part 17 and comes in, you know, to, to this. So um, um, at one point, I toyed with the idea that she was an avatar of Diane, you know, that Diane's fractured across the narrative. We talked about that in a different podcast, and that maybe Diane uh, manifests as candy, um, that there's, there's arguments that could be made. I'm not sure I really buy that now. I do think Candy is almost like a, is almost like another Dougie Jones character. She seems to be this very pure character who, who means well. Um, um, uh, but again, you know, again, we could we could explore it further. But I do like that idea that she is seeing the universe differently than than most of the other people around her. And we might dismiss her too easily as being someone who had, there's something wrong with her or she can't think right, when in fact it may be something far more profound. Yeah, I, I love the profound uh, reading of that. And it's funny because I remember when you were having those thoughts and they were strong thoughts um, and you know you, you exercise them, but then to come back and say, you know, it's, it's, I tried them on for a while and it just didn't feel right. I love that idea because Twin Peaks is a mirror in which you can try on these different thoughts and, and experiments, you know, the, of logic and, and association. And, and that's ultimately what it comes down to is it, does it feel right to you? Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, um, you know, all of this conversation that we're having and, and fans out there on, on all the different social media platforms is just ways of, of uh, not necessarily struggling, although that's a good word, just processing it. I'm trying to come we should struggle. Yeah. With well, yes. The return. Exactly. We should. Um, um, there is much to struggle with, but um, but struggle also implies that it's it's uncomfortable, and and I I don't really see it as uncomfortable. I see it as something that um, you know is, is something that you just keep at, and um, it sort of haunts you, and um, you find ways to to interpret it that make you comfortable or, 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 or make some sense to you. Well, we had talked about this in our first episode about baggage. You know, I mean, we, we, we are coming with that statement of comfort and I do agree with you. I find it comfortable now <laughs> when I first watched it, it wasn't so comfortable, but because I kept observing it and then eventually started witnessing it and talking about it, um, it became much, much more comfortable. And now I'm extremely comfortable having discussions within the framework of, of the return. Um, but again, that's not always the case when, you know, you've had all these pieces of baggage that you brought to it and it wasn't emotionally fulfilling and you walked away from it after one viewing and just said, it's not for you. Um, I think that it's a little more difficult to, to get to that point uh, that we were just talking about, right? So uh, 
a, a couple other ones. What, when this is going to borderline our conversation about technology, uh, but the casino camera, and there are other cameras that are that are uh, highlighted. It's been Sam and Tracy, like that camera, the idea of, of filming the glass box. And there's always this electronic eye that seems to be present and prevalent throughout um, at least Mr. C's run um, of, of the return. What are your thoughts about calling the camera an observer? Yeah, you know, in some ways, uh, this actually comes, uh, finds its origin in Firewalk With Me because there was a security camera in the hallway that mm. um, saw two Coopers. And right. um, was it was the technology in many ways that allowed for Cooper to see um, the world um, in a different way. So I think Lynch toys with that um, that idea. We do see a lot of monitors and screens. We see characters, um, uh, you, you know, through cameras. And um, this is clearly another way of just Lynch um, depicting the idea of observation. Yeah, I think of the prison, uh, all the computer, all the television screens in the prison. That idea of technology being a benign, uh, completely passionless observer. Uh, if you think about that firewalk with me scene, think of how different it would be if we saw it from Gordon Cole's point of view and he saw two Coopers come in versus we see it through the camera. And that's supposed to be like this really, you know, uh, passive and truthful obser observer, uh, but it gets bastardized. Neutral, that's great, yeah, great term. But it gets bastardized in the return. Like I, we've talked about technology and how it's corrupted uh, it, it before. And I think as an observer, it's a corrupted one in the return. I. Yes, quite possibly. I'm, I, I see that. I'd have to, I, you know, obviously have to think about that a little bit more, but um, um, it's definitely there. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's the service we provide, my friend. We give people to think about. Right. We give people exactly. meaningless things to think about a little bit more. <laughs> um, I, I thought of Alice Tremont's husband, the, the guy off screen. And we know that was the real uh, Mr. Reaver off screen there. Um, but that idea of this agency that this dweller on the, this final dweller on the threshold has to check with to verify the truth of things. Uh, I found that to be pretty interesting. Yeah. The, 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 the curious thing about that figure, I mean, when I can't even say figure because it's voice. And so we don't, we never see the person. And so we never see the, the person or the, the being or whatever entity it is. We don't really know. Um, uh, you, we don't necessarily see it observing. We don't know. It's disembodied. It's a disembodied vo voice. And so um, because it's disembodied, it, it, it lends to the idea that it could be omniscient and it's everywhere, or it could be just, um, you know, the voice inside your head that only, you know, you only you can hear. I, and again, I, I, I'm thinking out loud here, but, but I, I guess I'm hesitant to, to assign too much uh, observational meaning to that, whatever that is. So voice, yeah, it observes her. So it, it's not responding to Cooper's questions. That voice is responding to Alice Tremont's questions. So Alice Tremont is essentially a filter for the information that that voice conveys to get back to Cooper. So it is, to your point, it's a completely disincorporated uh, voice. We do hear it, so it hits our senses. Uh, but it's it's kind of the final, it, can, it may as well be the voice of God. <laughs> you know, it, 
and it is interesting. It's, it's fascinating. It just made me think about it. You know, this again, that scene, what would the scene have been without that? Because that scene, why, why did Alice Tremond have to confer? Um, the scene, yeah, the scene could simply have been Cooper asks the question, she answers it, asks, answers, but uh, Lynch layers in this extra um, just presence, let's say, where she turns off screen essentially and says and asks the question as if she is a go between between Cooper and maybe some other force. Um, and so um, while I, I, I can't necessarily I, you know, come up with any you know, a meaningful uh, analysis of it right now, it strikes me, as you say, that it adds something to that scene. There is communication that is being stalled or being drawn out or being translated. And um, it just adds an element to Cooper's quandary at the end as he's struggling to get information even the person he's talking to is is a go-between yeah. wow and it it, it complicates it, it really it. does and i don't know if you're a stephen king fan john or a dark tower fan have you read those novels by any chance um i, I no, i a little bit a little bit so that the, the longer you get it's essentially a journey to the outlands of, of the center of all of all existence which is the dark tower but there are the last two novels very much like this feeling, this emotion of being on the borderlands and there are very few speaking souls, but the ones that do talk are like representative of huge powers and big movements of, of fate. Uh, and I feel like these two characters kind of represent that for Cooper at the very yeah. end of things. Yeah, very interesting. You actually made a, a fascinating observation about. I'll, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll just jump in and just say we have two fascinating characters in the Return, played by the creators of the Return, and one is Mark Frost as Cyril Pons, and of course we all know that David Lynch plays Gordon Cole, and. Um, um, whether or not they fit into this idea of observers in the story the way we've been defining it, you um, you kind of um, just sort of summed it up uh, about them. I'll let you talk about it. The idea is that b both of those characters are there to observe. You know, G Gordon Cole actually has very few actions other than witnessing, observing, and making connections between things for other characters, sometimes in very strange ways. Mark Frost witnessed an event, you know, as Cyril Pons, sorry, Cyril Pons witnesses an event in the forest that is indeed supernatural and terrible. And um, I would call it sublime what takes place with that scene. And, and Mark takes that information and goes back to tell uh, Carl Rod, I believe. Is that right? Does he tell? Yeah, Carl Rod in the in the park. So again, yet again, Carl Rod, Carl Rod is, is bearing witness to great suffering that's happening inside of Twin Peaks and Gordon Cole bears witness using you know all of his devices and, and powers of, of uh, perception he's bearing witness to what is happening uh, in the, the more logical areas of, of the narrative I feel yeah I think it's just fascinating you know you, you noted that that both these characters are um, and I'm sure you know in, in some respect you know, it's just sort of a fun thing for the creators to do, you know, they insert themselves into the story, but they do, they do, um, obviously Gordon Cole's a far more prominent character than Cyril Pons, but, but still it's curious that they're both, um, 
you, you know, they're both trying to make sense of some stuff that they've seen. They're both um, delivering the information to to other characters, particularly, you know, Cole delivers this long explanation of what's going on um, to Albert in part 17, although he's really delivering it to the audience. <laughs> but um, I just it's interesting that I think just on a very, very, you know, sort of stepping back general level at Frost and Lynch of have kind of gone into the fiction to kind of keep an eye on it. Another thing Stephen King did in The Dark Tower, he wrote himself. Yes, I know. Yes. So that I think it's important. You know, that's a really important observation. I'm glad we created that together. It was really cool. And and that idea of the final observer, um, we talked about this, is the viewer. It's us. Right. And And we observe together with independent perceptions, but also communal ones like the ones we're sharing right here. And so I love that idea that, you know, you, I wrote the quote down, you said, you know, David Lynch is co-creating the story with the viewer. Um, and that's essentially what every novelist and storyteller does, right? Yes. And I think Lynch is more aware of the, of the dynamic maybe than um, other um, creators, this idea that, um, he he probably and Frost too have a comfort with with the material and the story the way it is. But um, I'm, perhaps Lynch more than Frost wants to introduce a sense of ambiguity, an invitation. I think is what I like to think of it. An invitation for you to help you, the viewer, to come in and build the story with him. And um, you know, as we've said many many times, everybody builds their own story. Um, out of what they see, but um, but Lynch designs the, the what you see on screen and and what you hear in a way that few other uh, directors and creators I think um, have achieved, and it is very much this sense of collaboration with the audience, and that to me is what makes Twin Peaks: The Return. Uh, stand out, um, uh, um, you know, uh, above so many other things, even great television. I mean, The Sopranos kind of tried to do it a little bit at the end of The Sopranos. There was an effort on the part of David Chase to say, I want you to collaborate here on what the ultimate ending is of The Sopranos. Um, uh, But, you know, I mean, even a great, great television show like Breaking Bad has a definitive, there's, you and I are not going to debate what happened at the end of, of Breaking Bad. And so the collaborative effort on our part with Vince Gilligan is, is very, very low. We are we're far more passive, whereas the collaborative effort on our part with David Lynch is through the roof. I mean, it is it's unchartable in terms of how we are contributing to the story. And um, for me, I think... Uh, that Lynch is, is is cognizant of that. He invites that, and that's what makes it just so so powerful. It's a very modernistic way to look at it. If I look at what writers like James Joyce, you know, and Virginia Woolf were doing back in the ni- early 1900s of re or opening up the novel into a new way to invite the viewer to come in and become a part of its construction. And, and this brings us back to that Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, that idea that there is no such thing as pure observation. The very act of observing something changes what, you, what, what you're watching because you're putting yourself into it. You're, you're, exactly. And That's it. Man, talk about a director who leans into that. <laughs> <laughs> that is it. That, that right there, that is it. Yep, yep.
Great. So let's let's close that out because I want to hear about your experience presenting on this uh, this recent international global Twin Peaks <laughs> online conference, right? Uh, yes, I'll make this very short because I know the podcast has gone long, and if anyone has uh, listened this far, uh, yeah, I, you know, um, the, there was a group of folks, um, um, primarily um, located in France. Um, uh, uh, Roland, I'm going to pronounce their names. I'm going to butcher names, and I apologize. Roland Kermarac and uh, Franck Boulanger. Um, and I know I messed their names up, and I apologize for that. Uh, but. Um, and, and, and a group of, of many other people, they put together a Twin Peaks online conference, online, you know, pretty much because we can't all get together these days, uh, and invited folks to submit ideas to present um, theories and ideas and essays uh, about um, about Twin Peaks. And I did that and uh, presented um, this past weekend about uh, an interpretation that I actually got published in. Uh, it's been in one issue of Blue Rose, but my idea of, of how we read Laura Palmer in the story, um, and, and just very quickly that Laura Palmer parallels the idea of this um, figure that is sent to earth by the Hindu god Vishnu in order to end the cycle of ages, to bring about the end of the dark age. And so if anyone's interested in, in, in that, um, it's on YouTube. You can just go on YouTube and type in Twin Peaks International Online Conference and you'll see all the different stuff. I'm on one of them. You'll, you can just, I think I'm on part five. You can go find find my talk about it if, you, if you're interested. Um, it was great fun to be involved in that. There were a lot of uh, fascinating presentations. Um, and, you know, it's, it reminds me of when we were doing Wrapped in Plastic back in the day, uh, Craig and I were always looking for, you know, essentially academic essays, but readable academic essays, things that you could, you could, uh, you know, you, there's a lot of academic essays that are hard to read and they get stuck up in jargon and, um, but uh, there's a great value to studying Twin Peaks with some academic rigor. And that's what these folks did uh, on this conference. Um, people from all over the world, um, a lot of university professors uh, presenting papers of theory on Twin Peaks. And I was humbled to be included in that number. So it was it was a lot of fun. Oh, and I thought you did a wonderful job. Highly recommend it. Uh, viewers, you can find that, or listeners, you can find that on Lynchland is the name, uh, all one word, Lynchland on YouTube. There's a whole two-day symposium there that you can uh, watch every single thing that was that was shown. Uh, you know, Rob King had a great presentation. Courtney, our own good friend, Courtney Stallings, did an excellent job. Um, you know, I'm thinking of Frank himself who was interviewed by Matt Zoller sites. It was a great season. And there are a, a ton of others that I just haven't had the time to get to yet, but I do plan on it. That was time well spent. Um, and, and I thought your, your ideas as usual, uh, just, just crackle on the, on the, uh, on the screen now, usually it's on the page, but here's on the screen. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, I appreciate that. And, and hats off to all the organizers and moderators. Um, I, I tweeted this out, um, it had to have been a difficult pro, uh, program to put together, just, you know, the logistics of it. Um, and they did, I, they made it look effortless uh, and um, um, th that had to be tricky. So that was a resounding success uh, for them, I think. Well, you mentioned Franck Boulanger and his wife, Marissa Hayes. Yes, uh, Marissa, they were of course. Both, mm -hmm. yeah, deeply involved in that. And they actually gave Scott Ryan and, and myself our start 
writing about Twin Peaks. We had an essay about Firewalk with me called But the Monkey Says Judy in uh, their book, which is a fan phenomenon book about Twin Peaks. And they were wonderful to work with back then. Uh, really, you know, I'm deeply grateful for the opportunity that they gave us at the time and to see them start to excel and, and really advance, you know, their own presence in, in the Twin Peaks community is uh, heartening for me. And I'm, I'm really proud of them both. Yeah, yeah. They're doing great work, and I would not be surprised if um, we see uh, uh, the second annual Twin Peaks online conference or potentially, should the pandemic, uh, you know, uh, end uh, everywhere, as I know in some places it's worse than others, but if we get past this, uh, eventually maybe they can actually do it uh, an in-person conference, you know, we'll all appear and, and give our presentations uh, in front of an audience, that would be great yeah that would be wonderful i think uh yeah, that may even pull me out of retirement to <laughs> there you to go have a chat to have a chat maybe we could do a live recording of our show sure. up there that would yep. be really cool we've talked about that before well um i think we'll probably pull this one to a close it was a long one but it's been a long time since we talked to you know about twin peaks together so let's just call this a bonus episode uh to, to make up for all the time we made people wait um anything that you want to announce to the viewers what's going on you still writing i am writing um just you know working at it i got a little off track because of these other things that were going on but um yeah um yeah just keep keeping at it my friend i am in the middle of editing my book right now and i put a tweet out the other day and said it feels like being in a in a locked coffin and you're down to your last match sometimes when you're when you're you're the only one copywriting your own stuff but i'm about to send it out to the professionals and i'm just i'll be really glad when it's done uh very grateful for the writing of it I and mean, i'm sick of reading my own words about this subject <laughs> i can't wait to be done with it yep yep I know the <laughs> all right friends well till next time you know keep watching keep listening and we'll be back soon to talk some more twin peaks hi friends this is jb minton co-host of the in our house now and red room podcasts and author of the book a skeleton key to twin peaks and I want to tell you about my new book coming this fall from the Follow My Bliss Publishing Company. Like my book on Twin Peaks to Return, it's a scene-by-scene -scene analysis with personal essays that explore the multiple BAFTA-winning British show This Is England by the incredible Shane Meadows. Most Americans have never seen this film in the three seasons of shows that followed, but I'm hoping my book is going to introduce this masterpiece to a wider audience. Taking place over seven years between 1983 and 1990 during Margaret Thatcher's time, This Is England happens in the Midlands of England and is centered on a group of poor skinhead teenagers who become adults and go through some incredible trauma while trying to maintain their humanity. I fell in love with this show a few years ago when I caught the 86 season on Netflix while traveling to the UK for business, and I loved it so much that I bought a Region 2 DVD player and imported the entire series back home in America. This book will be 300 pages of in-depth analysis and meditations on poverty, war, racism, violence, trauma, and redemption, set to the backdrop of characters that I have fallen in love with and set to one of the great soundtracks of all time. I hope you'll join me on this journey. Pre-orders start soon and will be available first exclusively through my website at jbmintonwriter.com. There is a page there now where you can get more information and see some of the designs and copy from the early draft. As always, thank you for your support.